Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Dr. Randy Bach. I'm here today with Knut Witkowski. Um, he's a biostatistician and epidemiologist, uh, previously from Rockefeller University. And he has um, he has shown integrity through the um, COVID pandemic. Uh, he stands by his words. He has not flip-flopped, as many have. Um, Knut, can you tell us a little bit about your journey, uh, what your views have been, whether they were accepted, controversial? Um, how does it feel you know, from this perspective now, having seen the way things played out? Uh, I'm not surprised, and I expected that what I said would hold true, because I'm very careful. I never say anything where I don't have good support from the data, and I understand the epidemiological theory. So I've been teaching theoretical disease epidemiology for 35 years. And there are very few in the discussion who actually have a comparable experience. And so I was very um, sorry for people that whatever I said was mostly criticized. I was shut down by YouTube. I I, I was uh, criticized by the Rockefeller University uh, for actually doing something reasonable. It was a very hard time. And then in 2020, I had quite a number of interviews and appearances. Now we have published the things, but uh, now there is very little interest in the media, in part probably because I don't change my position all the time. So there's never anything new in what I say. It's mostly the same thing I said three years ago. Okay, can you tell us the essence of what you did say three years ago? I said that we had coronaviruses before many times over the last hundred years, except that we couldn't sequence the virus. But this is how coronaviruses became, some of them became cold viruses. They used to be flu and then they mutated and became colds. Um, so it was nothing new except that we saw from the genetic testing that it was not an influenza virus. And so everybody got scared and the situation in Italy was not helpful. But then Italy is the oldest country in the world, maybe next to Japan and maybe the Vatican State. Right. So, as, far as, as far as demographics of the individuals. Yeah, the demographic is bad and the health system in Italy is also not one of the most stable in the world. And so uh, there were a couple of reasons that the epidemic looked very bad initially in Italy. But other than that, there was no, we have seen that initially in China, then in Korea and in Italy, that this epidemic um, does exactly the same thing all other influenza or respiratory virus epidemics do. They come, they peak, 
and they end. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing within a couple of weeks. So what we knew was that this epidemic is no different from other epidemics. And we knew that uh, from before the virus actually was recognized in Seattle in the United States in 2020. And it was confirmed. So what we have seen in New York in the epicenter of the epidemic in March uh, 2020 and early April 2020, what we have seen was a very normal course of the epidemic. And so there was actually on, and I remember that very well, on April the 17th, 2020, there was a meeting at the White House. And of the people participating, both the president, or all three of them, the president, the vice president, and then the director of the CDC, they all three advocated that the country should reopen. Redfield, the director of the CDC at that time, he said, we have all the reporting tools in place. We have hundreds of people here at the CDC standing ready to deal with the epidemic and help out all the states who might have a problem. So we are prepared, we can reopen. So the three most important and also knowledgeable, at least one of them was one of the most knowledgeable people, advocated that the country should reopen in April 2020. And it didn't happen. And until today, I have no explanation. I haven't seen any reasoning why the country was not reopened. Just remember, the lockdowns were supposed to be for three to four weeks to just prevent a spike from getting too high and overloading the hospital system. And after that period of three to four weeks, the lockdowns were expected to end. And at the White House, the decision was made, or at least uh, the opinion was voiced by the main leaders that the lockdown should end, but they didn't. Why? You tell me. I have no clue. Well, I think there was, I mean, I, I don't know why the president didn't preside adequately in that. Um, I, I think that there, there was, you know, he was at somewhat of a deficit not being medical. I mean, that we don't have a medical, I don't think we've had a medical president. And I think Rand Paul ran once, but um, and Ron Paul, I don't know if he was a physician, but um, the, the, the concept, uh, you know, is always going to be that, that, you know, the health people are going to take over. But I think this is a mischaracterization of what public health has been and should be. But Robert uh, Redfield, the director right. of the CDC, the Center for, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, was from his experience and his uh, position, the most important person in the room. 
And Robert Redfield advocated reopening because the CDC was ready uh, to deal with all situations that might come. Yeah, so I mean, we'll have to go look at that separately. So, I, I, I do you have a theory about that? I mean, and what did happen? And and how, how did you, you know, in, enter into the um, into the conversation? Well, I published in late March a paper in the same publication organ where uh, the two British epidemiologists had published before, which was Niels Ferguson and Sunetra Gupta. Mm -hmm. And so I published in the same organ in bio in Med Archive. I analyzed the dynamics of the epidemics that we have se had seen so far, including in China, in South Korea, in Italy. And I concluded that what the government should do is to isolate the nursing homes like people like it was very successfully done in South Korea and keep otherwise keep the economy and the schools open. I agree. And somehow that was apparently misunderstood. So the government kept the nursing homes open and closed the economy and the schools. And it makes no sense at all. I mean, you know, the, the, I, I, I'm not no, I'm curious, make sense. I'm curious how, how much and to what extent you also looked at the Diamond Princess, which I kind of see as a perfect, you know, lab, almost like a laboratory experiment. Uh, if you, you, you know, you couldn't, it would cost you $10 billion after the fact to get 3,700 people on a boat and spread coronavirus when it was unknown and so forth. But at the time, you know, the median age of death, there were 11 deaths out of the boat of, after a few months. And it was the median age was 82. And that was pretty much duplicated, uh, duplicative of uh, other places, you know, including the US and Italy and whatnot, that it was, you know, it's a sad thing. Nobody wants to get the influenza. Nobody wants to get the coronavirus, so forth, old. But, you know, old people do die. 45%, I think, of the um, deaths um, were nursing home quality or lack of quality individuals. Uh, and if you're in a nursing home, your life expectancy is about 13 months. Um, in 2019 and 2018, and they might have changed a little bit in 2020, but you know the 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 real bulwark against passing infections around historically with colds and flus and whatnot has been that the mobile population, uh, who's not going to really you know exhibit severe illness or death uh, from this, you know they go around and they basically become the fortress uh, against the continuation of the virus. Um, so so the first question is. A, a, do you count the Diamond Princess as a reasonable experiment? Do you look at that at all? Um, were, would people ignore that? And then B, um, does that align with your views, kind of the, the forming of a, uh, like a fortress uh, for the, the old elderly and so forth, if younger people can build up immunity themselves? I have to say, I have never looked uh, that much into that ship. Uh, what you just mentioned was uh, there were a large number of high-risk people on board and of them very few died and people that vulnerable people are dying of respiratory virus disease infections is nothing new it happens every year 
Every year in the United States, between 35,000 and 65,000 people died from the flu. And that's just normal. And nothing to be scared about. And nobody before had came up with the idea to shut down the economy because of the vulnerable elderly. It's not just enough to be old. You also have to have uh, several comorbidities as we learned in Italy. Uh, of those very vulnerable people, some will die. And that is unfortunate, but natural. So you said you didn't flip-flop. Have other people flip-flop? Um, when you look back, you know, I was, um, you and I were chatting before this, and there's an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, that quotes the article from the Lancet, very recent vintage, that, uh, uh, you know, they're kind of, you know, coming to the realization natural immunity works. <laughs> you know, it's, been, it's prevent, presented stronger, uh, broader-based immunity to all the variant strains in the original ancestral version as well. Um, have, have people flip-flopped as a result of this? And, and whom do you see or who, who do you see as having done that? You mentioned just one case. Uh, the New York Times very recently flip-flopped. So suddenly they acknowledge natural immunity and they question the effectiveness of masks, which is something that they haven't done for three years. Well, uh, one another big example. One little caveat um, on that. That, that was that's that's a, that was an op-ed piece by Brett Stevens, and he's the he's the resident non-leftist at the New York Times. So I don't think it was the, the house organ itself or the chief science writers at the New York Times per se, but they did allow the piece in, which is different for them. Ordinarily, they keep a pretty strict um, rule about what type of things, even from their non-leftist op-ed writers, opinion I writers. I mean, for, for three years, the New York Times has been uh, mostly a spokes, spokes organ for the government. That's uh, true. So they haven't done what uh, newspapers, I think, should do, and that is to question the government and ask for explanations. Uh, it never came, at least I don't remember it ever coming from the New York Times. Mm -hmm. and, but the New York Times was not the only newspaper. I think all of them uh, were more or less the same. Everybody felt, for whatever reason, that the government should not be questioned, even if, and you mentioned flip-flops, and the government was flip-flopping, or at least um, Fauci, for instance, was flip-flopping several times. Um, just uh, to think about masks, initially he said nobody should wear a mask. Then he said we should wear a mask, not because it does anything to the epidemic, but of a sign of our willingness to participate in fighting the epidemic. Then masks should be worn until there is a vaccine. And when the vaccine was there, we should wear two masks on top of each other. This was all one person speaking for or advising the government. Uh, I don't see a lot of consistency there. No, nor do I. Um, I. I think that I think a lot of this 
you know, uh, the, the word, I mean, public health, Publius is, is um, Latin uh, for the people, basically, the public. And I think, and it's also the same word as politics. And I think th that a lot of politics, it goes into public health and we shouldn't ignore that. I mean, I think that's not a bad thing because we don't want to be governed by a diagnosis. We shouldn't all stay indoors because monkeypox is a bad diagnosis if you happen to have it. There has to be a political equation, you know, which balances the needs of the people who might have monkeypox versus everybody else who needs to go to work or whatever the illness or RSV or whatever it happens to be. There always has to be an equation and a kind of a, a balancing of what it is. And, you know, I, I can understand, you know, if we had the equivalent of, um, I don't know, respiratory anthrax, you know, going around, um, if, if anthrax, whatever, that, that maybe there should be some certain mandates or whatever. But, but I think, but there was always a disproportionate aspect to this um, uh, most recent pandemic. And the, the shouting down of opposite voices, I think in, in part contributed um, to the, the perception that they were overdoing things. Um, so the question I have for you is, uh, um, where did this, where did your paper get you? Um, what happened with your um, name and voice and and were there you know, people persuaded and what's been the result where what's been your path uh, from that and since that some people got persuaded but um, it didn't have the response that would actually uh, ha have an influence to correct some of the things that went wrong and part of it is that the philosophy here was to shut down any discussion. No scientist was allowed to ever have an opinion that deviated from the current opinion of the government or the WHO, whatever it was people were referring to. Mm -hmm. And that was considered science, when in fact, the very nature of science is that people discuss to find the best solution for a problem. And that would have been particularly important in a situation like this, where we were faced with the proposal of interventions that had never been tried before. There had never been a lockdown. There were certain areas like Wuhan were isolated. So isolating the those who are cases, real cases, those who have symptoms, isolating those who are cases and might spread the, the disease to others is a very well tested strategy in epidemiology but here we put we isolated the whole population the, the healthy people the healthy people were never isolated the, there were never restrictions on the healthy people so it was something entirely new and yet it was never discussed because the discussions were blocked so where, where did this concept come from? I mean, it must have been written about or 
or been part of some, you know, pandemic war game or whatever, where, where did the concept go? What, what has been written and what had been previously written about lockdowns and so forth in the epidemiologic literature before 2019, say? Uh, nobody had, to my knowledge, nobody has ever even considered a lockdown. It was something that arose in Italy. So initially, the situation in Italy looked very bad. Um, lots of people died, and that wasn't clear yet. That was only a, a few weeks later. It wasn't clear yet that only those people died who were old and had at least two severe comorbidities. So initially, it looked very disastrous, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so the Italian government, in its need to do something, perceived need to do something, they started lockdowns. And to the surprise of everybody, people did not revolt. People did accept it. And so there was suddenly a new tool around that politicians could use. And so everybody found something they could use that tool for. And so it was used extensively. Hmm. But there was no evidence that it does anything Right. Good in terms of epidemics. None. It had never been tried before. And it was also not done in a fashion to actually try to find out whether it might work. So uh, all the strategies that scientists have to answer questions, like saying, okay, let's do a lockdown here, and then we have another city that is comparable close by or and there we have no lockdown and then let's see what happens mm -hmm. that type of comparison was never made so there was no evidence around that would help to justify doing something that had never been done before and that is even though in medicine the major uh, guideline is first do no harm and every intervention carries the risk of doing harm and the lockdowns did a lot of harm some of it was obvious it cost a lot of money but others were not so obvious were known to epidemiologists but epidemiologists were never being asked uh, let me talk for a brief moment about the negative effects of lockdowns. The first is something that was not we were not allowed to say very early on. A respiratory virus disease ends when we have herd immunity. That word was not allowed to be used. Mm. Although it's a very, in epidemiology, this is what it is. And today, 
we can use it again. And that concept is, doesn't sound so strange anymore, that we have to get to herd immunity one way or the other. And the fastest way to get to herd immunity with the least number of deaths is to isolate the people at the highest risk in nursing homes and some other people and let the virus run among the other population, the young and healthy. Until we have herd immunity and then it's over. This is how over the last hundred years, at least 200 respiratory virus epidemics have ended naturally. They come, they peak and they end and the whole thing happens within a few weeks. And that was no different, for instance, in Wuhan or South Korea or Italy. The epidemics ended naturally, like all respiratory virus disease epidemics do. However, and then you have relatively few deaths. However, what happens if you mitigate? People say, well, we want to stop the spread. Yeah, try again. You cannot stop the spread of the virus. You can at best slow it down a bit. Isn't that good? Not really. In the end, you need almost as many people to get infected, to have herd immunity, even if the level is a bit lower, have herd immunity. But what happens if everybody mitigates, if everybody wears a mask, if everybody practices social distancing, all things that the vulnerable should do to get protection. Mm -hmm. If everybody does the same thing, the vulnerable get infected as much as everybody else. Right. Just because everybody does the same thing. Right. So the vulnerable have no extra level of protection. More of them get infected and they are the people most likely to die. So if we are all wearing masks, if we are all distancing, if we are all doing these things to equalize the protection for the vulnerable and for the healthy, we end up with many more deaths. And that is well known. There is no question about that. And the one thing that I don't understand is why people are not thinking by themselves. Why are they believing everything some politician tells them for whatever reason? Wearing masks is not protecting other people in the social settings that we have here. Wearing masks is at best, meaning if the masks are working, if the masks are working, wearing masks is something that increases the number of people dying. That's the first problem. The second problem is 
I'm not sure if you remember that term. Lockdowns and masks and whatever else is were introduced to flatten the curve. Oh yeah, of course. If you flatten the curve, it takes more time. And since we, the observation of that virus in Spain in the summer of 2020, we know what happens when you flatten the curve uh, for the spread of a coronavirus. It keeps mutating and it takes about three months for the virus to develop a resistant strain because it needs several escape mutations that need to be acquired successively. And that takes time. So if you're flattening the curve, you're giving the virus the time it needs to develop a resistant strain, one that can spread even in the presence of herd immunity against the previous virus. So flattening the curve not only increases the number of people dying during this particular epidemic, it also incubates the next variant for the next epidemic. Mm -hmm. And we have seen that many times. We may, um, I like the case of Japan uh, because Japan is a very, is an isolated population, not only geographically, but also culturally. There is much less, much fewer people getting in and out of Japan than out of the UK, for instance. And so you see how the epidemic develops within a particular region. And what we had in Japan is we had now, it, it just ended, the eighth wave. And during this time of the eighth wave, the vaccination increased. So now on the average in the whole population, Everybody has at least three jabs, three. Hmm. And what happened to the epidemic? Every wave, at least among the last three, but every wave of death was worse than everything before. Going all the way back so to we the epidemic? Even though more and more people get vaccinated, we have more death per wave. So let me ask you a so question. You can draw your own conclusions. Well, right. I mean, I, I think there's a couple of different ways of looking at it. Um, I have to have to go look more carefully at the data because you just presented to me today. But um, I do appreciate the point. You know, the question I have, first of all, is are all three of those um, uh, injections, were they all the, you know, the original ancestral or any of them the bivalent uh, this is a very broad statistics but in japan the vaccines that were available to the people were no different from the vaccines right. that were available in europe and in the so, united so, states I've, I've written on this a little bit and my take on it is that um you know the the, the very I, I i'm i'm on board with you know pretty much everything you've said so far 
um, my own, the way I look at this, actually, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the Al Alec Baldwin, um, the actor. Uh, he's pretty famous, uh, you know, from 30 Rock and a bunch of other shows. And he's got, I think, uh, three brothers and he's got a niece, uh, Haley Baldwin. They're all reasonably famous. And the example I used, Alec Baldwin, you know, is, is on trial potentially for shooting somebody on this on a set of Rust. And so we'll we'll just stipulate he's the ancestral version. He's the the most dangerous of the SARS CoV two. So they're all Baldwin's. And so Alec is the dangerous one. He's the original, the ancestral SARS CoV two. But each strain that comes along is a little bit less like him. Uh, they look a little bit like Alec Baldwin, but not very much. And so the first, the alpha, the beta, the delta. Uh, strains there are others, but those are the major ones that came along. They're like Stephen, uh, Billy, and I forgot the other Baldwin. Um, uh, and so they're not quite as dangerous as Alec Baldwin. And and so if you're protected, if you have a picture of Alec Baldwin not to let into your house, that's your immune system. They they might let some of the other Baldwins in because they're not as much Alec Baldwin. So there's some there's basically some mutation, some flux, uh, some variation from the original Alec Baldwin. And, and the example, just to strain this example, I apologize, but Haley Baldwin is married to Justin Bieber. She's his, his niece. She is a Baldwin, technically, but she's not dangerous like Alec Baldwin or even as dangerous as the brothers because she's a gal and she's, you know, she's pretty harmless. And so I see that as Omicron. It's, it's not quite related to the original strains. So what people have been doing mostly is they're vaccinating against Alec Baldwin when Billy and Stephen Baldwin and I forget the other one, <laughs> you know, are coming along and, and they don't get full protection because it's not Alec Baldwin who for, for whom they have an ID. Uh, you know, the police have a, a picture. And then and Haley Baldwin, there's no point in even being concerned about Baldwin's anymore when Haley Baldwin's the only one around. So I think there's kind of a category mistake in treating Omicron as if it's still coronavirus. You, you pointed out earlier on that, you know, we've had coronaviruses forever. And my article, I had an article in the Daily Skeptic in October um, should we stop treating Omicron like COVID-19? Because COVID-19 is long gone. It's, you know, we're 2022, 2023. You know, these are different strains. And, and I think what we're having is kind of a factitious, fallacious um, look at, at, at testing. So we're testing positive for coronavirus. Oh my God, it's, it's COVID-19, but there are other coronaviruses. And I think people keep kind of flipping, you know, leaving this out of the equation. So it's sort of an irrelevancy to have had all these multiple jabs against Alec Baldwin when there's other Baldwins around that for whom this does not really adequately cover. I think that's part of the article, you know, the, the, the Wall Street Journal is mentioning, you know, about the Lancet is that natural immunity has been better for all these re more recent variant strains because, the, you know, frankly, there's no real coverage from the original ancestral spike protein jab in, injection vaccine um, to these other ones who are not the same version. It's not Alec Baldwin anymore. And again, whichever Baldwin it is, or maybe it's not even a Baldwin at, at all. It's just, it's, it's moved on. And so I apologize for the, you know, the, the analogy. Um, but, but, you know, the Japan data, I'm not, I'm not sure there's, you know, huge waves of illness overall in, in a greater scheme of things to Omicron. I mean, I think it's probably equivalent to a flu, that kind of thing. But, but um, you know, as these various waves point in, I mean, certainly to your point, you know, it is an increasing irrelevancy and certainly not necessarily a benefit to have had extra jabs, extra in, in, injections, extra vaccines against something that does no longer exist. Alec, you know, the Alec Baldwin version, the SARS-CoV-2 doesn't circulate anywhere on earth. You know, it's all been gone for a long time. And so we keep, you know, a fair number of them, even in the bivalent, we keep injecting against that when it's an irrelevancy. At, at, at best, 
and at worst, a potential risk factor for, for its own separate problems, given that they're risk factors from any vaccine. So I apologize for going off on a little rant there, but you know, I think I'm mostly in line. I think, it's, I think it makes it difficult to interpret data like that because in a sense, the vaccine is sort of an irrelevancy if it's using the ancestral component. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if I follow the example or the analogy. Yeah, I'm sorry. In general, I, I don't like analogies because every analogy has its flaws. So yeah. if I can argue without an analogy, uh, I will try that. Um, so what we have here is, while a virus is in a population, the population acquires immunity. And if enough people are immune, then the virus has nobody left to infect anymore, and the epidemic is over. So that is, actually, it doesn't have to be everybody. It's enough, oh, I said enough people. So uh, if we are flattening the curve, we are giving the virus enough time to develop enough mutations, several of them, successively, to be able to spread again in the presence of immunity against the previous version of the virus. And then we have something that is essentially a new virus. And so I don't know where that fits into your analogy. And um, one thing that we know is that the virus evolves not only to evade the natural immunity, but also to evade the vaccine-induced immunity. So based on the underlying biology, the effectiveness of vaccines is constantly declining. And that is something that we have, we now have data for, and it's now that even those people who would ignore that in the beginning, uh, are now realizing that vaccine, the vaccines against the old virus variants are not as effective against the new variants anymore. Right. And there's a clear biological explanation for that. Yeah, I agree. Perfect. So let's, let's talk about what you're up to now. Uh, what are your efforts? Um, what have you been doing? What should people learn from the situations we've had how do they? How do we try to address uh, the current situation, such as it is? Um, well, okay. So I'll, I'll try to parse that a little bit. Let me let me go backwards first. Um, what's going on with the COVID nineteen response currently? Uh, you mentioned a May eleventh, uh, I guess, uh, cutoff. Um, what's going on by the U.S. government? What do you What are your thoughts about it? What are the um, predictions or worries? Okay. My thoughts first. I think that starting in the late summer of 2020, the government realized, or the governments realized, that they had a big, made a big mistake. It was so obvious at that time 
The problem is, if they had in April, on April the 17th, or the days after that in the US, and mm -hmm. similar in other places, if they had stood up and said, you know, what we told you four, five, six weeks ago, that we need lockdowns, we were probably too pessimistic. So we don't need them anymore. Sorry, we erred on the side of caution. Whether that's true or not. But anyway, the government could have said we erred on the side of caution. So let's reopen the country and uh, we can deal with uh, four weeks, maybe five weeks of lockdowns. And I think everybody would have understood that. They would, people would have said, okay, was a new virus, yeah. who knows? The problem was that the guidance, and I said that in the very beginning, the guidance from the director of the CDC to reopen the country on April the 17th was not heeded. Somehow, for reasons that I don't understand, the lockdowns continued. And so they, and after a couple of months, we had major damage done from the lockdowns, on, from the side effects of the lockdowns. And so it was, became very difficult for the government to say, oh, we made a mistake, let's reopen. So they were looking for something else. Yeah. Then I, the I, idea came, then the idea came, let's do the lockdowns until we have a vaccine. Unfortunately, as every epidemiologist would know, a vaccine against a respiratory virus disease is always comes always too late. Because at the time where you have the vaccine, the variant the vaccine is really effective against doesn't exist anymore because natural that's immunity that's, has eliminated that's, that's it. That's exactly my Alec Baldwin point right there. So the vaccines didn't work. And now the governments are backpedal. They, st they still know that it was a big mistake what they did, but they're backpedaling slowly, saying, well, we have lots of death, which we originally had from Omicron, but people are dying of a milder virus. And so the deaths are not so bad. Okay, I'm, I'm just trying to make the point here that the idea of it's a milder virus and no people were still dying until about a year ago. But right now it is also in China. Worldwide, the governments are backpedaling, saying we want to do less, less lockdowns uh, for whatever reason, and then they come up with something. So they want to get to the, to do 
what they should have done three years ago, three, yeah, three years ago, and that is essentially nothing. Right. Because to think that uh, politicians today know better how to fight a virus than the human immune system that was developed over a few million years um, is a bit absurd. Yeah. So have you heard the recent, uh, uh, speaking of flip-flopping, uh, Fauci flip-flop in the sense that um, vac vaccines don't really work, you know, don't really work for respiratory viruses. It was like a couple of months ago, maybe a month ago. Uh, it's like, you know, the viruses come in, you know, respiratory viruses come through mucosal tract and the vaccines are inside, um, you know, have immunity. It doesn't really, they don't really work in essence against uh, respiratory viruses. Did you see that flip-flop as it were, or, or admission against interest? Did you, have, had you seen that one? Yeah. Right. We have other diseases that are transmitted um, um, through breathing or through droplets and where vaccines work very well, smallpox. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference between the respiratory virus diseases and diseases like smallpox or measles or uh, whatever else you want to come up with where vaccines are working pretty well is that these vaccines, the other vaccines, uh, the other viruses, they don't mutate. Smallpox didn't mutate all the time. Measles doesn't mutate. So if you have a vaccine, you have a vaccine. Well, the problem with the respiratory virus diseases is that they mutate a lot. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a vaccine, you can hope that there is still some cross immunity between the virus it was designed to work against and the virus that's spreading right now. But it's not more than a hope and well, usually there is a bit of cross immunity, but right. that's all what we have with respiratory virus diseases. Right, well, I think there's two other differences. I mean, with those measles and smallpox, those are systemic problems that are getting inside your body. So if the vaccine's been inside your body, it's you know working inside. Whereas the the internal injected vaccine is not necessarily going to provide you mucosal um, uh, antibodies uh, to the same extent as you know a natural immunity does. You know, natural immunity, you're going to have more surface contact and you're going to have more surface preparation for any future viruses of that type. Whereas the injection is not necessarily going to have the same ability to stop the initial entry and potentially pass it along. There, there is a misconception here, and that is that the whole event happens in the mucosa. Mm -hmm. The mucosa is the first step of the virus to enter the body, and then it spreads beyond that. If the virus would stick to the mucosa, we wouldn't have the replication of the virus to these huge numbers that in the end are, can overwhelm the immune system or the, uh, of the vulnerable people. If it were restricted to, to the nose, okay, you would have, you might uh, no, not be I able agree. to smell for some time, uh, but uh, then you, you wouldn't die from it. You wouldn't die no, from an infection of the mucosa in the nose. No, I get that. I, I'm just saying 
that it could be that the vaccines against measles and um, smallpox work better because that is where the, the um, well, I'll have to maybe rethink my theory, but that's where the major problem happens is systemically. Whereas I think a lot of the people who have the, you know, coronavirus, they're going to have respiratory compromise. It's sudden adult respiratory syndrome. So it's a lot of it's happening uh, on the surface, you know, within the lungs and so forth, the reaction initially within the surfaces. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, spend a lot of time on that, but I think that is a minor distinction that would maybe bear some examination, but um, let, let's kind of carry on a little bit and talk about, because we're rounding towards, you know, the uh, three quarters of an hour. And I'd like to, you know, come up with some closing thoughts and statements about where you've um, concentrated since then. Uh, has your voice been uh, heard more or less in the interim? Is there any acknowledgement okay, that uh, you might have been right? And and what are what are your recommendations? So let's 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 do the you story first. Um, what what has okay. been the fallout so, for you? What I have been working on and advocating very early on, and ever since, is to fight the comorbidities rather than the virus. We are notoriously bad in treating virus diseases. We have one hepatitis C, and we know that this is a big exception. Uh, we have no really good treatments against any other virus. I'm simplifying a bit here. Mm -hmm. uh, so we cannot treat it with the respiratory virus diseases because they mutate so fast. We cannot vaccinate against them um, because it's spreading easily. We cannot isolate. And it's spreading before people have symptoms. So you cannot, this is a big difference to smallpox. Smallpox was not spread before people had symptoms. You would first see the symptoms and could isolate the person. And only then would the person become infectious. Mm -hmm. So we know that none of these strategies is very effective. But we also know that if you don't have metabolic syndrome, which is being obese, having type two diabetes, having atherosclerosis, having immune deficiencies, having, there's a whole bunch of conditions. Mm -hmm. And some of them, and the most com common is metabolic syndrome. And metabolic syndrome can be addressed and reduced mm -hmm. through in nutritional interventions. And people say, well, that never works. Uh, people have said that also to masks that they never work. They couldn't imagine people wearing a mask and the, accepting that the country is shut down. So I think we would have quite, we could successfully reduce the amount of metabolic syndrome and thereby reduce the amount of death dramatically in for all sorts of upcoming respiratory virus diseases. And that is something that I have been working on. We have identified a component and that is alpha cyclodextrin uh, that is known to be effective in clinical trials against all types, all types of respiratory virus diseases. And we have made it 
uh, from a drug that can needs to be um, is it difficult to absorb to one that is easy to absorb or an intervention let's not use the word drug here necessarily so there are things that at least should be discussed but that discussion never took place because it was vaccine, 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 and nothing else. And uh, as I said before, lack of discussion means we have lack of science. I agree with you there. We need to discuss and be open to look into other options. And so I think what we need to do is to take a serious look into nutritional interventions with substances that are well characterized and known from clinical trials to deal with the major, well, with at least one of the major cofactors of people dying from COVID, and that is metabolic syndrome. Excellent. So let me ask you on a personal basis, um, you had some fame, notoriety, um, and popularity uh, during 2020 and whatnot. And um, do you find that people are coming back to your theories? Are they looking back? Are you welcome in the, in the scientific academy? Um, I was, I, I texted you something showing, you know, ResearchGate, the number, you're, you, you would have hundreds of citations every year from other researchers, and that number's like dropped to zero in the last year or so. Um, do, you, uh, do you feel ostracized? Have you been ostracized? Is your voice heard? And are you getting any kind of uh, apologies um, or acceptance for your previous concepts? Where do you live? Where do I live? No, I am, it's a rhetorical question. Right. Uh, nobody apologizes, of course. That would be to, to expect that would be totally unrealistic. Okay. Uh, the best I could hope for is um, companies actually being interested in at least having a discussion. But even that doesn't happen. If you do something that is not mainstream, not what the government has expressed they want and are funding, and uh, then the industry is doing it, if there is something outside of that, uh, mainstream, uh, it is being ignored. All right. All right. Well, um, I'm, uh, I'm going to let you have a last word uh, for our audience. But before I do that, I just, uh, I put in my shameless self-promotion here. Um, I'm the author of this book, uh, uh, Overturning Zika, which is the last uh, pandemic, or as I say here, uh, the pandemic that never was. Um, and it's on Amazon uh, for people uh, to find and shop and so forth. Um, it's coming out in Brazil shortly. Uh, Jay Bhattacharya has commented on it favorably. Um, and I'm hoping, uh, well, I'd love to get your thoughts on it, uh, but I'm hoping that um, people will look at that to, to kind of reinforce that uh, the public health authorities are not right all the time. Uh, there were a lot of pronouncements. People were told not to have children ever until there was a Zika vaccine. It's been eight years and counting, uh, no Zika vaccine. People would have been birthless throughout the, the Americans throughout the tropics if they had listened to the WHO. So I recommend uh, they take that with a grain of salt, uh, which is probably not, a uh, as people have been told, also of a huge risk for hypertension, uh, salt that is. 
anyway um so would you like to give us a last word to our audience um yeah i've i have said that many times uh that what you just you just mentioned we should uh, not necessarily trust our governments um we should actually question them all the time and we should act we would should take over the initiative a democracy can only work when people take over the initiative and actively question the government if people don't do that the governments you said do they come and apologize no they no, do they not come and apologize mm -hmm. uh, they the only way of doing that is to engage actively in the process of democracy well, and think... in the united states democracy is almost is always seen as something yeah it's in the books uh, we have the constitution so we have a democracy and we don't need to do anything about it i think that is the wrong approach we need to do a lot about it all the benjamin, time benjamin benjamin franklin said you have we have a republic you have a republic we have a republic if we can keep it and so it does it does redound to the fabric of the people involved and and you dear listener are one of those people so you have to keep these things in mind uh thank you uh uh, Professor Vitkovsky, uh, for your time. You can stay on. We can chat for a minute, but uh, we're going to say goodbye to everybody else. Thank you so much. Thank you.